When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Stacks. For this episode, I talked to Dirv Gordon, lead singer of one of the great British bands of the late 60s and early 70s, The Equals. The Equals' place in pop culture history has come to be defined by the commercial success of songs like Baby Come Back, I Get So Excited, and Viva Bobby Joe, but their catalog runs much deeper, revealing a dynamism and diversity that goes way beyond the bubblegum label that some have attempted to affix to them. Over the years, their records sifted and blended elements of rock, soul, ska, funk, blues, pop, freakbeat, psychedelia, glam, reggae, and bubblegum. A sound that was always evolving, always different, yet always unmistakably the equals. Dirv Gordon's soulful voice and dynamic stage presence was a huge element in the band's success. He's still performing today and sounds as fantastic as ever. Not only that, he's a genuinely great guy and always a pleasure to chat with. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. get into this um so you and your brother lincoln were born in jamaica obviously you lived there until you were seven years old so what do you remember about your life in jamaica um little bits really um it was quite as far as i was concerned it was quite idyllic because my parents came to the uk when i was probably about four years old so therefore we went to live um, on a farm in the country with uh with relatives and it was quite idyllic, really. It was, uh, we had no sort of immediate neighbors. So it was quite a large farm and all sort of animals and stuff on there. And uh, they, they were really kind to us. So I didn't miss my parents as much as you would think that I would, really. Yeah, that must have been really nice, actually. It was, it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful, idyllic. And the thing is, you probably didn't—I probably didn't appreciate it at the time, and until after we've left, you know, because it was free, you know. Um, there was lots of fruit trees that they grew just about everything. Most of what we, what was grown there, is what we ate. It's all natural stuff, no fertilizer or anything like that. And there was also a farm shop as well, so pe- different people from the areas would be popping in and popping out, you know. And we were. We were treated uh, really well. I had no complaints at all. Yeah. And then from there we moved to, we came to London. To, 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 to London. Yeah. So tell me about that. That would be the the fifties. Well, early fifties. I remember coming off the plane and it was December and it was snowing. I'd never seen snow before because obviously you don't have snow in the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah. And, and I wanted to go back on the plane. I thought, like, even though my father had told us that, uh, you know, he sent us uh, clothes for, for, for the winter. He sent us winter clothes because in, in, in the Caribbean, in Jamaica, I mean, all you would wear is, is just a shirt and a pair of short trousers, really. Yeah. That was it. So uh, he, I remember him writing a, a letter and saying that he's sending us a, card, a c- cardigan. And I thought, Cardigan? What the hell is a cardigan? <laughs> you know, so I had a dictionary, so I had to look it up and say, oh, okay, so we need that. And he also mentioned that when you open the refrigerator door, that's basically how it feels in the winter in, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in Europe. So I said, okay. But uh, the plane landed, and the door opened, and washed this, you know, this 
it was it was like opening a refrigerator door. And uh, there was this white stuff coming down. I thought, oh, I don't like this. I'm going to get back on the plane. But obviously, that's not possible. And uh, then our father met us. And um, driving from um, from the from Heathrow Airport to our home in, um, in Islington, it was snowing, as I said, there was snow on the ground. And uh, I saw smoke coming out of these buildings, the top of these buildings. I thought, why are these buildings all on fire? <laughs> I've never seen anything like it before. It was very rare to have anything higher than a bungalow in, in the Caribbean. You know, you didn't have two stories or three stories or four story buildings there, you know, in the in the fifties. Oh yeah. So, so it was all very odd. But uh being with my parents now then, you know, made things different then. You you felt differently. I was happy because I wanted to be with them. So I didn't miss uh, Jamaica as much as I thought I would do because being with the parents, I mean, everything is back to normal for the family. How about uh, adjusting to, like, going to school and making friends with other kids and things like that? I had no problems, really, because um, in the 50s, it, it, we were sort of like novelties, really, because we were the only blacks in, in our school for, for a couple of years. You know, I went to a primary school. We were the only, myself and my brother. And my sister were the only black children in that school. Um, we didn't really have any sort of major problems. No different to any other kids. Made yeah. friends easily. We seemed to, we were sort of a novelty, really, you know. I mean, as a, because most of the kids had never seen a black child before or a black person before. Yeah. So it was a no, it was a novelty for them, but in, but in a good way. Like uh, you know, yeah. you're you're interesting and uh, different, and and uh, you know, we want to get to know you or whatever. That's right. Everyone wanted to be your friend, you know, and uh, that was good. And uh, what I discovered with school, because I went to school briefly in Jamaica, and uh, I was bullied there in a way because being born in Kingston and going to the country, your accent is different. They know that you're not from that area. And oddly enough, I was told uh, to go back where I came from. Which <laughs> <laughs> was strange, really. Which, in a way, has made me feel like a foreigner for all of my life, really. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I never lived, actually lived in where I was born for yeah. more than a few years. Yeah. It's odd, really. Yeah. So, um... When did you first start becoming interested in music and, and then actually wanting to make music? Well, I first became interested in music because on the farm where we were living, there was a little church. And it was uh, a lot of the services involved singing. So I enjoyed singing there. I had a, a little drum and I would play the little drum. So as far as I can remember, I've been interested in music. Yeah. And we also had a radio, and on the radio, you could get all the, a lot of the stations that were on there were from Cuba or from Florida. So, you know, we had all the jazz music on the radio, uh, blues, rock and roll. I mean, I was a great Little Richards fan, Pat Domino, uh, Chuck Berry, you know. Yeah. So as far as back as I can remember, I've loved music. I even tried making a guitar out of a, um, a, a sardine tin. You <laughs> stick a piece of bamboo in it and try to play that. Or you can also make music with uh, a wood saw as well, depending on how you bend it. Yeah. It makes it a really nice sound. So I've always been interested in music. Right. And, and was Lincoln the same? Yeah, yeah. So how did it? Oh yeah, go go, no, on. go on. Well, I was going to say, how did you? You know, how did it come to be that you met the other band members and and started to put the band together? Well, John Hall, the drummer, is uh, his mother wanted to keep him out of trouble, so he wanted to to be a musician. So she encouraged him, but um, he couldn't find anyone to join his band. Uh, so I had a friend who lived across the road from me, and he had a guitar. And uh, he said to me uh, that um, 
he's got a look, he's got a band, but they need some more members. And the guy called Eddie, not Eddie Blount, another Eddie. Yeah. So myself and my brother, we bought a guitar as well. And he took us to meet uh, John, John Hall. And uh, at the same time, Eddie Grant was there. But John Hall and Eddie Grant went to the same school. Right. They didn't know each other at school. But a friend of John introduced them together. So we decided, okay, we'll form a band. The guy who took me there, after a couple of weeks, he was able to play the, the guitar, whereas myself, I wasn't very good at it. Lincoln was better at it than me, and Eddie was okay as well. But So he decided, this other Eddie person decided, that he would take a break for a couple of months while we catch up with him. <laughs> <laughs> a big mistake. <laughs> and that's the last we heard uh, from him. And uh, I saw him. Uh, actually, I saw him shortly after Baby Comeback was in the, in the charts. <laughs> we met in a club, and uh, he wasn't very pleasant towards me. But, I mean, it wasn't my fault that he left. I mean, his argument was that we threw him out, but we didn't throw him out. He, he left. He said he wanted to take a break until we catch up. <laughs> and um, that, so that was myself, John, Eddie, and Lincoln. So we needed another guitarist because, as I said, this is, uh, Eddie person had left. And uh, shortly after that, I was in a club uh, near John Hall's home, a youth club. There were loads of youth clubs in London. You know, every night you could go, go, apart from Sundays or Saturday, you could go to a different youth club. Sadly, they don't exist anymore. Yeah. And uh, I was with some friends, and Pat Lloyd was with some friends. Uh, for some reason, Pat Lloyd's friends didn't like my friends. So they started to argue and whatever. And uh, oddly enough, I just started to talk to Pat. And uh, he asked me, what, what, you know, what, what, did I, what do I like? So I said, well, I've got a band, you know, showing off now. Because it wasn't really even, you know, we just had some practice sessions for about six months. So um, I said, okay, you know, I'm in band. So he says, oh, that's funny. He says, my father's just bought me a guitar, you know. I said, okay, we're short of a guitarist. So, you know, come at, why don't you come along? And there you go. That was the forming of the equals. Wow. So in the beginning, there's no bass player? No, there was no bass. There was just uh, guitars and, and drums. So my guitar playing was not very good. So they decided that I should be the singer instead. Right. So, okay. Because I enjoyed singing. I, I'd sing out, sang all the time. I mean, it's true what people say about singing in the bath and all sorts of things like that. You know? Everywhere I was, I was singing all these Fats Dominoes, Little Richard songs, um, blues songs, you know, to myself. And uh, one night I went to a friend uh, of mine had a band and they were playing in a pub in Prinsborough Park and uh, he asked me to come along so I went along and the next thing I know he called me up on the stage and I started singing and I thought I like this oh wow yeah this is it you know people applauding you know <laughs> yeah I like it. and my career started as a singer. So what was the repertoire in the beginning? Was it what you were saying, like Fats Domino and Chuck Berry and stuff like that? Yeah. We were mainly sort of, it was mainly, and, and soul, soul stuff as well, James Brown, uh, Motown stuff as well. Right. And then uh, we decided we, we weren't very good at it. You know, we thought, we, you know, people would, might say that you're not very good. Because we used to play in these little youth clubs, you know, and it was okay. But then we decided it would be better if we wrote our own songs. Because if you write your own songs, people can't say you play it badly. Yeah. It's yours, you know, it's how you want it to go. So, um, yep, then, then the writing style. What were the first songs? Do you remember what the first songs were? The first songs were I Won't Be There was one. 
Yeah. Baby Come Back was one. Hold Me Closer was one. On the first album, the Unequaled Equals album, those were the first songs. Right, so right out of the gate, you were coming up with great well, songs. No, but some were rejected. I mean, those were the ones that were chosen. <laughs> oh, those were the, Also, yeah. um, injected on there were some other, um, Giddy Up and Ding Dong and things like that. Because uh, President Record was also, the man, the man who owned President Record also owned Casino Music, which was a publisher's. And he published those songs that we recorded that were, that were written by us. Right. There because he's getting the publishing royalties from those. And the production on the album as well wasn't, um, he's got it produced by Eddie Kaufman, but it isn't. Right. It was, um, was um, a guy working for Decca Records, but he couldn't, he couldn't um, claim the production thing because he was uh, a Decca produ uh, producer. Right. Uh, so we had to record one of his songs as well. But how it came about, us getting the recording contract. We, Eddie, we normally practice at John Old's home because his parents didn't mind the noise and the neighbors, they, they were great. They, they didn't mind it either. But uh, one night we decided that we'd perform, uh, we'd uh, rehearse at um, Eddie Grant's house. And uh, next door to Eddie Grant was um, a guy living there. He was a singer. His name was Gene Latter. And um, he heard us playing the songs that we'd written. And he knocked on the door, he came, came in, and he said, told us that he's a singer. And uh, he likes the songs that, he, that we're playing. Uh, were they our, our songs? Because he'd never heard these songs before. We said, yes, they're our songs. And um, he said he would like to record some of them. So I said, okay. He said that he knows um, um, the boss of the record company, President Record, and he could uh, arrange an audition where we could perform the play play the songs for him, uh, to him, to Eddie Kasner, uh, to see if he likes them, and maybe he'd be able to get himself a recording contract. So we said, okay, fine. So we set up a meeting. We went to Denmark Street, where President Records was located, and we started to perform the songs to the boss, Eddie Kasner. And he said, well, I like these songs. Wait, I'm a So we performed about five songs, and he said, you're having them all. So we uh, sort of looked at each other and said, uh, yes, 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 we have more. So he said, okay, I'm going off to America, because he went off to America uh, two or three times a year. So I'm going off to America, and when I come back, you know, if you have some more of these songs, I would like to record it. But I don't want uh, Gene Latter to be the vocalist. I want you, Dirk, to be the vocalist. So I said, oh. So really bad for about two seconds. <laughs> and, oh. So, and so we recorded the first album on Equal Equals. Wow. So Gene, Gene Latter, his idea of, you know, having a hit with, with some of your songs was completely, it completely backfired on him, that idea. Well, well it did, because he, he said he had a hit in Belgium with a Rolling Stone called, song called Mother's Little Helper. Yeah. I think it got in the top 100 or something like that. But he was well known around, around the music business. Yeah. Because on the first recording sessions, he, was, he came to the studio, actually, even though he was quite upset, because... Um, he wanted part of the management of our group because we didn't really have a manager and he wanted part of the management. But with Eddie Kasner, it's all or nothing. Eddie Kasner doesn't share anything with anyone, you know. So he paid him off because he was really upset. I saw him shortly after that. He was drunk and, you know, he was swearing and saying, yeah, I sold you out for 500 quid. And, yeah. <laughs> we stayed sort of friends afterwards, uh, you know. He actually, he did record later some of our songs, like I Get So Excited and so on. So while uh, Eddie Kasner was taking the Queen Mary to America and back or whatever, you had yeah, to come up with the rest right. of the album. That was it, right? Yeah, yeah. So going back to The Equals, uh, the first thing you did was that album. Before you even had a hit single, you had a hit album. 
uh, got to number number eight in the UK chart. Right. And charted in Europe and, and so on. And that that was a great feeling because about a mile away from my home was a record shop that we used to go, and we would um, get records on credit because we couldn't buy enough pay for an old album, so we'd let you have it, and then we'd take a couple of weeks and you pay for it. And uh, when the Unequal Equals was in the charts, he plastered the whole front of the shop with the album. You know, he used to go there and sort of stand outside the shop, you know, and everybody recognized him. Yeah, it was a great feeling. But uh, you started having hit singles first in Germany, starting with uh, I Won't Be There. How How did that come about? Why was that? Well, we... For some reason, I won't be there, got in the German charts. So we were invited to do um, Beat Club. And uh, Beat Club, just about every kid in Germany watched Beat Club. Yeah. And there was a disc jockey there uh, at a club, a disco, in Bremen, where Beat Club is recorded. And he w- was a great lo- lover of uh, uh, the equal stuff. So we had... Uh, I won't be there. And then after that, they released "Hold Me Closer" as the the A side, and "Baby Come Back" as the B side. And he was a very influential disc jockey. This guy in the club in Bremen, disc jockeys all over Germany would listen to the stuff that he plays. And he said he would prefer "Baby." He prefers "Baby Come Back." Everyone, all the club parties when they become that, and not so much hold me closer. And it shot up in, in, into the German chart, and then from Germany, German German charts was influ, influenced charts in Holland, Switzerland, France, and all over Europe. You know, so it became a hit, but, but not in not in the UK. And then it was released again in the UK, got in the charts, got in the top 30 one week and then dropped back out. And then the following week, it, back in it came, and then just climbed up to number one. Wow. I knew it, just thought Baby Come Back was just, was just kind of a throwaway, right? Just the B-side. Hold yeah, Me Closer was the one you thought that was going to yeah. take off. Yeah. Which is a great record. Well, too. it wasn't our choice. I mean, everything, the choice is our 30 Kazanah, what is A-side and what is B-side. Yeah. Originally. But as I said, the, the guy, the disco... Discos were very influential with the charts in Germany and Europe. So the guy flipped it, said, no, I prefer this one. And uh, then we got an um, invite back to Beat Club again to do Baby Come Back, Police on My Back, I Get So Excited, Softly Soft. We, we, were on, we were doing Beat Club probably three or four times a year. Yeah. You know, with all different tracks. Yeah, I mean, you were you were huge in Germany. That was that was your biggest market, right? Yeah, and uh, the producer liked us. I don't know why <laughs> he liked us. So, uh, and he he was a very he was he was a nice person, and you d- didn't normally find that a lot with uh, you know TV producers and that. You know, most of them are still really distant. You know, you don't really see them. But he was on on the ball. So, yeah, I mean, let's talk about visually, you guys had a very distinctive image, you know, let's talk about the clothes and, and uh, the style that you guys had. It was, you were very colorful compared with, you know, a lot of the other bands out there. Yeah, how did that come about? I think being from the Caribbean, I mean, Caribbean, uh, when, I, when I first came to England, the thing that I, I found most depressing was everything was gray. You know, there was no color. You know, everything was just grey, grey. And uh, the, 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 you have this Caribbean thing with colours, you know, because you have, you have flowers that are colourful, clothes are colourful, and uh, the 60s was brilliant because um, 
the 50s was really drab, really. You know, clothes-wise, it was really drab. But then in the 60s, like, anything goes. You know, I mean, who would have thought in the 50s that somebody would be wearing a pink suit? A man would be wearing a pink suit, you know? Or a pink shirt, you know? Or red trousers, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was unheard of in the 50s, but in the 60s, we sort of broke barriers. Yeah, you were the trailblazers for that because even, you know, the Beatles and the Stones, they were wearing sort of dark, you know, gray suits and, you know, gray well, clothes. they're not from the Caribbean. And the funny thing is, John was like somebody from the Caribbean as well. <laughs> he, he loved the same sort of music. He loved ska, blue beat, you know, all the stuff that we loved as well. And that was brilliant. That made it even more exciting. And we would try to outdo each other on, the, on clothes as well, you know. Right. Apart from our first um, television outfit, which was like something from Star Trek, I think. We all wore the same clothes. And I, I thought, I don't like wearing the same clothes as everybody else. You know? I have my own thing. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's how it started. It was like a big competition. And not far from where I lived was um, a, a tailor who was Italian. And they love colors, you see. So if I would ask him, to, could I have a shirt made in that color? Could I have trousers made in that color? Oh, I'll get the material. And it wasn't a problem, you see? Yeah. And then you had Carnival Street as well, where things start to really change there. I mean, things became very colorful there as well, you know. Right, but yeah, but Carnaby Street, a lot of the stuff was more mass-produced, right? And you would... Well, I wasn't into the... Well, yeah, but just off Carnaby Street, there was a little shop called Carnaby Cavern, and the guy there, he was a, an ex-dancer. So, he had, you know, when you mention something to me with, with flair and so on, it was not a problem. And you'd go in in the morning, you're off to a gig, you, you'd tell him what, what you would want, you go off to the gig, you come back the next day, and it was made, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you went, went into a normal uh, clothes place and said that I wanted a pink shirt, they would think that, you know... You just come out of the mental home and something, you know, always to him, you know, no, no, yeah, yeah. Why don't you have some frills in it as well, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk next about the finally broke out with a hit single in the UK, uh -huh. which was I Get So Excited. So what do you remember about that? You wrote that with uh, with Eddie, right? Yeah. Um, I, I wrote that actually because, you know, um, you're driving along. And I used to get into trouble with this when I first got married. And you're looking at what's happening on the pavement, you know. And in the 60s, there was lots of beautiful... London had a lot of beautiful women, you know, or still do, really, you know. <laughs> so, you know, you think, oh, wow, yeah, yeah. Oh, I But I had coming in my head all the time. You know, I would be up four or five o'clock in the morning, you know. And sometimes you'd get a line, and then you couldn't follow that line. And I couldn't sleep until I get a line to follow that line. And uh, I, enjoy, I used to enjoy songwriting. I haven't written a song for years, but I used to enjoy songwriting. You know, it's fun. Oh, yeah. Well, especially when then you can take it to the band and it, you see it come to life. I mean, that's nothing. It's one of the most yeah. fulfilling things, isn't it? You know, seeing some... And it was also a bit of a competition as well. You know, I mean... And sometimes, instead of, um, when you're on tour, instead of going off to a disco and, or whatever, which you were always invited to, myself and Eddie and Lincoln would lock ourselves in our, our room uh, and write, write songs. Right. And then you would have a meeting with President, with Kersner. You'd present the songs and he'd say yes, no, yes, no. And uh, sometimes he made good choices, sometimes he, he didn't. But... Uh, he was the boss, I mean, you know. Right, right, so he thought he knew best. So sometimes... I'm sure that we threw away some stuff that were quite good songs, but uh, never got recorded, but... Um, yeah, oh, yeah. That's life, right. that's how it goes. Yeah, right. Well, let me s throw some other song titles at you. And, uh, Softly, Softly, that was a, you know, a real crowd pleaser, right? Yeah. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, it's not what you think, Mike. You know, <laughs> hold on, I'm coming. You know, it's like the, you know, the time and day. You know, hold on, I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> You're in a, yeah, there was always a lot of... Uh... It's a double meaning. 
<laughs> Honestly. I love how there was always a spontaneous sort of shouting between you and, and Eddie going on during the songs, and, and I suppose Lincoln as well, right? Uh, like, just the, these ad libs. I yeah. did a lot of um, ad libbing. I mean, it annoys me sometimes when I see a song and it says, uh, you know, written by Eddie Grant. Because 50% of it was either something myself and Lincoln threw in there but never got credited for. But, you know, that's how it is. Yeah, right, right. But yeah, that, that it gives you, all your songs have that, this sort of infectious, I mean, it sounds like you're having a great time while you're recording them and while you're yeah. performing them. And, and that's, you know, when you listen to a record like that, that makes you feel the same way, you know? I used to love recording during the night. I didn't like recording during the day. You know, I loved recording during the night. And 90% of the time, it would only be the band in the studio, you know. And I would do a guide vocal uh, so that the drums, uh, drum, bass, rhythm can get the song to lay the foundation. And then later on, I would do the, um, the lead vocal. But sometimes they would keep the backing vocal because I couldn't better it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so that was okay. And then I would uh, do backing vocals as well with uh, Eddie and Lincoln, as mostly. John didn't do any uh, singing. Pat did very little. It was basically myself, Eddie and Lincoln, really. Uh, tell me about Michael and his slipper tree. That, that's one of the catchiest songs I think that's ever been written. <laughs> That was Lincoln and Eddie's idea, and uh, it, it was, it's based on a Caribbean nursery rhyme about the nutmeg tree. <laughs> There's no way you could see Michael and his nutmeg twins, it sounds stupid. But for some reason, Slipper came up and took off from there, Michael and his slipper tree. Yeah, nothing goofy about a slipper tree, you know. <laughs> no, it's funny. It's one of my son's favorite songs, you know, my grandson as well, you know. Oh, love people love this, that, that song. It's, it's, it's also like a, a football chant as well, you know. Especially the bit I go, my girls, you know, everybody loves, loves singing that. Yeah, 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 you kind of force the sing along and clap and stomp, you know, it's just got that feeling, yeah. Uh, yeah, Viva Bobby Joe was another one that was, uh, that was like that, you know, very much like sort of a football anthem. That's right, but Bobby Joe, it started off as Bobby Joe, and I said, no, I, there's something wrong here, you know, just Bobby Joe, Bobby Joe, I said, no, that doesn't make sense. I said, what, what, what is it that in Mexican, in, in Mexico, you know, Spain, you know, when somebody's in a race, because it's about a cycle, a guy riding a bike, bicycle, you know, so I said, what, what is it, you know, when, when somebody's won, you know, a race, you know, the crowd shouts, Viva! Everyone said, yeah, that's it, Viva Bobby Joe, that's it. There you go, Viva Bobby Joe. <laughs> and you actually, uh, it was short, for a while there, it was Viva Bobby Moore, right, after the... Great well, no, that's, the, that's when uh, West Ham Football Club took that, took that over, and they started singing it as one of their anthems. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so, <laughs> and then uh, President invited Bobby Moore down to the, to the studio to do a photo shoot, and um, he came along. And, I mean, he was the only England captain to have won the World Cup, really. Yeah. That was in 66, and this was in 69. So he was still a great hero, you know. Oh, absolutely. And he turned up in Denmark Street, and he was driving um, MGB. And I said to him, uh, oh, I said, nice car, eh? I said, I've got one of those. He looked at me with a little smile on his face. He said, it's the missus's. It's not mine. The wife's car. I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> Really nice, man. So after that, I went out and bought a Aston Martin instead. Wow. 
Yeah, so you guys were making some pretty good money, and and you know there wasn't a lot of like young, you know, West Indian guys that were driving around in these flash cars in London at the time. I mean, that must have been no, no. I mean, I had some stories then. Some people would, you know, would look at you and smile. Coming onto Oxford Street one one day with with Jude, and uh, I stopped so that people could cross, and a man with a bowler hat and umbrella, and he looked at me, looked at the car, and whacked the bonnet of the car with his umbrella and walked on. Something about that really upset him, huh? Oh, it didn't really upset me, you know. I mean, I, I, I take these things. I don't go on and, you know, mope about it. Uh, because then you had people who would look at you and smile, you know? And uh, people would say, oh, well done. And, like, when you have, like, the Aston Martin, I mean, everybody wanted to challenge you to a race, you know? You had the traffic lights and boom, 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 yeah. Look, it's a Ford something out there, you know? when he's looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> the Aston would do 50 miles an hour in first gear, you know. <laughs> My mother was terrified of driving in it, you know. She said, you're trying to kill me. I said, no, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Just a fast car. And in that argument with Jude as well, she didn't, the first one she didn't like at all, you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so yeah, you'd only just learned to drive and you were already driving these really flash cars, right? Yeah, but the, the problem with that as well is that the insurance was almost impossible to get insurance. Uh, what we had to do was to get insured through the um, musicians' union because the insurance company's argument was that if you're driving your car, you're a showbiz person, yeah, and the person, your passenger, might be also a famous person as well. And if you have an accident, and this person claims it could turn out to be thousands and thousands of pounds, but they wouldn't insure you. And sometimes the insurance in the car costs almost as much as to buy the car. Oh, wow. I didn't even but, think about uh, that. If you want it, that's what you have to do. Well, I mean, well, this brings us, of course, to um, the, the equals were in a pretty serious car accident in Germany, 1969. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell that story that for us? That was the band's... Um, Bentley. And to this day, I'm still thinking as to why we had our car in Germany. Because normally you would fly in and transport would be laid on for you. But on this occasion, we were doing a show the night before in a town called Bielefeld. And uh, from there, the, the next, we were meant to be driving up to Bremen to do a beat club on uh, Vivo Bobby Joe. And uh, we did a great gig the night before, really enjoyable. Got up in a great mood, had breakfast, managed to get John out of bed, which was normally difficult. <laughs> Sometimes we had to wheel his, his bed out into the hallway uh, before he would get out of it. <laughs> he, he was the only drinker in the band, right? <laughs> yeah, but he didn't drink to excess. Nobody really drank to excess, really. Yeah. He'd have the odd drink. Um, we'd have a little nibble at, uh, I think there was a tablet called Purple Arts or something. But uh, no, there was no sort of heavy drinking. Okay. Uh, we all smoked apart from Eddie. And, uh, but John just had this thing about getting out of bed. You know, he just couldn't get him out. So we eventually got him out of bed, had breakfast, got in the car. Uh, our driver, Mike Parrish, who oddly enough, after leaving us, uh, went to drive and um, work with Stevie Wonder. But uh, we were going along and suddenly it started raining and really coming down heavy. And the next thing I know, the car was just turning over and over and over because we'd, we'd gone down into like a gully. It's true what they say about when you're in a situation like that, your whole life flashes in front of you. And uh, I remember getting out, coming out, I was thrown out of the car, and on the grassy knoll, I could hear this person going, oh, oh, I'm dying, 
I'm in pain, I'm dying. And it was Eddie. And he was impaled on this barbed wire because it was like a farm. And he was impaled on this barbed wire. We managed to get him down. I took off my beloved leather jacket, red and cream leather jacket, and covered him. Oh, man, that, that ruined that. There was blood all over that. And uh, we're sort of just wandering around. And there's this car with the four wheels up in the air. The driver, Mick Parrish, is running around like a headless chicken, <laughs> mumbling. And a British lorry, army lorry, was coming past because it was in the British part of, because Germany was divided up into sections, you know? Right. Uh, British, French, American, and German, and, and uh, Russian. Yeah. So we were in the British part, and British lorry was coming past. They saw the car, they recognized the car was a Bentley, and they could see us. So they realized that uh, we're, we're British, and they put us on the lorry, the army lorry, and took us to a private hospital. And uh, when we got to the private hospital, the big problem there was they wanted to know if we could pay for treatment. <laughs> and uh, our driver goes, of course they can pay for treatment. It's the equals. Oh, the equals. And someone telephoned England, and it came on Radio 1 that we were involved in an accident, and there's possibly fatalities. Now, I'd not long been married, and Jude was pregnant. And she was staying with my mother at the time. And they both heard that on the radio. And uh, she, she fainted. You know, wow. She thought we were dead. But you were all okay except for Eddie, right? No, um, Lincoln had uh, got two broken fingers, uh, sort of pat. And I had a little cut on one finger. And John was okay. But the odd thing about that is that we normally, group are very territorial, you know, and transport. You know, you always sit in the same seat. Yeah. And for some, Eddie asked me to change seat with him on that particular day. And I reluctantly said, yeah, okay, you know, I'll, I'll go in the middle, you, you can have my, my, my seat. Because he, he wanted to read, because in the back of the Bentley was, um, you had lights then. You know, in expensive cars, you had lights in, in at the back. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he wanted to read. So I said, okay. So if I was sitting there where he was sitting, I would have probably ended up where he did. Yeah. So what was yeah. the what was the extent of uh, his injuries? The barbed wire caught him between his leg, his groin, in his groin area, and a deep cut there. And he was in hospital there in Germany for two two weeks, and then came back to um, the UK. And then when he came back to the UK, he had to go to hospital, and they found that he had a, a problem with his heart. So we we were off the road for. A, couple of months. We yeah. never got to do Viva um, Bobby Joe and Beat Club, <laughs> strangely enough. You probably lost a little momentum there, you know. Well, we didn't want to work without him. And uh, it took me a long time, really, to get used to traveling again on the road, being driven by someone, you know. There was always this little tension there whenever, you know, I got in the car. And we were working, you know, six, seven nights a week, really. There was a lot, a lot of traveling involved. You'd start off with a tour that's supposed to be a two-week tour and it ended up to be a six-week tour. I can see, but you don't know. I can see, but you don't know. But you don't know. Let's go back to some of the records. Um, I can see, but you don't know. There was, that one wasn't a hit, but what an amazing, amazing record that is. I would have bet anything I had that that song would have been a hit. And it, it, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, it's really, it's really, it was, and it's different from anything you'd done up to that point. It was, uh, it really had a special yeah, vibe different. to it. Yeah. 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 It, that, that, that and uh, Diversion as well. Diversion, right. I thought, would have, would have been a hit as well. Yeah, yeah, another fabulous song that completely slipped through the cracks. Yeah. I mean, not long after that, you change your direction and another killer record, uh, Black Skin, Blue Eyed Boys. Ah, uh, yes. Tell me what you remember about that one. I remember everything about that one. I could even remember the session, actually. We went in the studio and we did it in one night. <laughs> 
And how how the beginning there? Okay, I'm loosened up now, children. That that was never part of the song. That was just I was in we was in the studio and there were too many people in the studio, and there was just doing some overdubbing and so on. And I was getting really peeved. And I said, listen, come on, you know, I want to do my lead vocals now. You know, time for the lead vocals. So I got behind the microphone, look at everyone uh, in the box. I said, okay, I'm loosened up now, children. Okay, I'm loosened up now, children. Wow. Everyone shouted, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it was picked up by, we got a TV show on ITV. I don't know if you remember comedian, this jockey comedian, a guy called Kenny Everett. Of course, yeah. And Kenny heard the song and said, I want that on my show. And he had a very popular show that went on early in the evening. We went on there, we did it live, and bam, you know, up it went into the charts. Then uh, Top of the Pops picked it up. And uh, that's it. Fantastic and song, it's been yeah. covered by a number of people. And one of the most pleasing ones is the, the cover is uh, the Nessie Shoals horn. Oh, yeah. They, they do a cover of it, which uh, I really like. They ain't got no country. They ain't got no creed. People won't be black or white. The world will be at free. The world will be at free. We had a lot of difficulties trying to get President Record to get behind it, you know, because at first they said it's the lyrics, you know, it's too controversial. So we said, okay, we are going to pay for the recording, which you do anyway, because at the end of the day, it comes out of your royalties anyway, you know. Yeah. The one who thinks that they're recording and they are paying for it, you know, and if the record's released, they're wrong. It comes out of your royalties. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I guess President were just afraid of the controversy, yeah. of, you know, the fact that it was, you know, for like yeah, but the black rights. Yeah, well, being a multiracial band as well, you know, that caused problems at times as well. But uh, nothing that we didn't overcome. Right. In the beginning, people said, no, it won't work, you know, you're either a black band or a white band or whatever, you know, you can't be mixed. But most, 90% of my friends were white, so it wasn't odd to me. Yeah. With one or that, you know, because it was like being like most of my other friends, you know. Right, I mean, it was never a problem, I think, for your fans or, or for the kind of people that came to see you play. It was, no. it was more a problem for the older generation that didn't. I think so. I mean, I can't honestly say that we faced any sort of outward racism. I would be lying if I said it. The only time I sort of noticed something like that was in Belgium. We were doing, a, we did a lot of shows in Belgium. And on one particular show, I noticed that um, the people, the girls, that the boys that came up for autographs would go to the to the white members, to the two white members mostly, than black members. But apart from that, you know, I mean, if anything, I think more people came to the black than, than to, to the whites, you know. But uh, I never looked at it as John being white or Pat being white. I mean, they were just people that I knew and grew up with. John's parents, uh, his mother was very progressive. She was a lovely lady, very encouraging. She paid for the equipment, our first equipment. We had it on credit, and she signed it because we're all underage. She signed uh, for you know for for the HP agreement, and we paid her back you know from from the little gigs that we did. And she was very encouraging because she she was so happy to see John not being in trouble, you know, because he was a bit of a wild boy, John. Yeah, they all loved my parents as well. My dad wasn't very encouraging. I mean, I thought I should go to university or college or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Music isn't, you know, a profession that you can live on, you know. Right, of course. Proved him wrong. My mum signed our contracts. (laughs) So, then, I guess the next thing that really happened was there were some disputes with President 
records and and uh, eventually like Eddie left the band I mean how did it all kind of all that stuff go well, down um there was a dispute with president because we asked for an increase in royalties and uh, because our first contract was illegal our first contract was wholesale which was illegal it should have been retail because wholesale being paid on wholesale instead of retail is a big difference sure yeah the record company will buy a rec- make a record for, for 10 pence okay sell it for 20 pence whereas in the shop it's sold for two pounds. So what we should be paid for royalties is for the shop. So we eventually got that sorted out. And we, we just got fed up with, with President because, you know, like with the problem with the black-skinned white boys and the rest, it was just one problem after another. And we got uh, an incredible offer from CBS Records. So we took that offer, but we were still under contract with President. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we got sued, and uh, they cost us a lot of money, but we still ended up with a lot of money anyway from the deal. And we had to record some uh, rock and roll material for President Records. That was part of the deal, as well as paying paying back some money. Right. So this is why we recorded the rock and roll two out rock and roll albums, Volume One and Two. And a number of the songs in there were, were published by Casino Music, which is president as well. But we wrote some of the songs in that as well. And uh, after, after the accident in 69, Eddie wasn't quite himself anymore. I mean, he didn't really enjoy traveling. He said it was too much. He was feeling tired. And his idea was that he would leave the band because he didn't want to tour anymore. And uh, he would um, he would still continue to write, and we would go off and perform. And I thought, no, that's not a good idea. If you're out of the band, you're out of the band. You know, that's it. Yeah. So when I saw in Mojo magazine a few weeks ago, well, I didn't even read it. Somebody told told me that he said he was thrown out of the band. Complete nonsense. He was never thrown out of the band. He left the band. But Eddie, Eddie tends to exaggerate anyway about anything and everything. But uh, yeah, that's it. He left. And then Jimmy Haynes was his replacement. Yeah, but Jimmy was Jimmy was a great musician, but um, not the easiest of person to get on with. You know, his lifestyle was totally opposite to mine. In what way? Uh, I don't really want to go into it. Look, look. Let's put it this way: I don't take drugs. Okay. Yeah. Enough said, yeah. I find that working with people that do take drugs can be very, very difficult. You know, every time you record something, you're not happy with it, want to record it again and again and again and again. And it just went on and on. Uh, on stage wise he wasn't really he wasn't Eddie he wasn't really he didn't really fit in right well you guys had the original five had that chemistry you were like friends yeah. from the beginning that chemistry wasn't there anymore yeah it wasn't enjoyable so uh, he, he, he left So, yeah, and then, you know, that was basically the band wrapped up for a while after that, like around 73. Yeah. It was never the same after that, Mike, really. It was never the same after that. I only got the, that feeling again working with, uh, working with So What, that feeling I had with Equals, working with Jason and the guys. I got that feeling back again. So let's talk about that, yeah, because... Uh, for anyone that's listening that didn't know about it, I mean, about five years ago, I think, you first connected with Jason. Uh, 2017, uh, no, 16, actually. He, uh, Jason wanted to contact me to write an article on the equals, and yeah. I wasn't very interested, really. And he got hold of uh, an agent that I did do some work for in Germany, and the agent gave him my number, and he contacted me. And 
I wasn't really up for it because, you know, I was getting really disillusioned with the whole thing. And uh, between Jason and Jude, they pushed me and pushed me. I said, oh, okay, 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 okay. So uh, we decided to do, to, to have a meet. Jason was in London. We had a meeting and uh, he knew a lot about the equals and uh, Jude liked him. And if Jude likes him, then that's it. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. If she likes somebody, I, I normally trust her judgment. She's normally very good at that. Yeah. So we decided to do the show in, um, in San Francisco, at the Elbow, Elbow Room. And uh, when I, I met up with Jason three days or so before the gig and went to rehearsal, they knew all the songs that we wanted to do. Actually, they remembered some of them more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a great rehearsal. And uh, came back to the hotel, I said to Jude, yeah, I think I'm going to enjoy this. Hey. So we did the gig. But the sad thing is, it was very, very enjoyable. But I had the flu. And I didn't realize how bad the flu was. I almost collapsed on stage. And for the first time in my life, halfway through a show, I had to come off stage and sat down for about 15 minutes and then went back on and completed the show. And uh, everyone said it was a brilliant show, but sadly I could have enjoyed it more than I should, you know, but having the flu, I mean, my voice wasn't 100%, felt fainty, you know, and at times I felt as if I was going to collapse, but I thought, no, you're a showman. If you're going to die, you've got to die instead. <laughs> <laughs> the great thing with working with So What is you work with other musicians and you're never quite sure that they know what they're doing and you haven't got that confidence in them. Everyone in that band, I have 100% confidence in them in what they're doing. They're brilliant musicians. And not only that, they are very nice people. And Mike, it is not very often that you find that. No. You know? There's always <laughs> yeah. one or two that's uh, not very pleasant. I find them very nice people. Jude loves them. I love them. You know, great musicians and great people. And to me, that's important. Right, yeah. Very, very yeah. Important. yeah, especially if you've got to spend time with them and yeah. you know, get in a van and drive yeah. and do all that stuff. That's right. Traveling with them is a joy. But I've always had this thing. I'd love to travel in America, you know. And I got that opportunity, and so it was great. Yeah. So how many how many cities did you play in? Um, on the first one, the first gig was just uh, San Francisco, and then we did uh, New Jersey and um, New York. Those were brilliant, and then we did the the tour in uh, in the July. The, the, where we did San Diego with you, and um, we did um, Seattle. We did LA, obviously, right? Yeah, we did LA, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a good gig. I enjoyed your gig, actually. I really did. The, the thing about the show that was so great was that you realized just how many fantastic songs the Equals had, because it was just one after another, and every song was like, oh, yeah, this one. Oh yeah, yeah, this one and this one, you know, and and then it was like, no, there, you ne and you were never going to run out. It kind of seemed it was no, amazing. No, no, no. Sometimes we had to pull, pull, I had to hold. Come on, Jason, can't do that that many. You know, we can only do nineteen songs. You know, but there's so many, many more that you could do. But the great thing about that is being. I love being close to the audience. I yeah. don't really enjoy these big, you know, ten thousand, fifteen thousand venues. You know, I love to be there with the audience, you know? Right. See the expression on their face, see the joy on their faces. To me, when, when you're doing these big venues, it's just a blur, you know? You, you don't really see a lot of faces. It's just a blur. But I love being close to the audience. Right. Getting that feedback right there, right, directly. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's what it's all about, yeah. And it makes me happy to make people happy, if you know what I mean. Well, that's the purpose of it all, isn't it, really? That's right. 
Well, I, I mean, I shouldn't be telling you. I mean, you know that. I mean, you do it all the time. <laughs> yeah, but but watching you, I could see, I could see that it's such a extreme way. You know, you were just so happy to be performing, and that making the audience happy, and so it's just a kind of a feedback loop of that happiness and excitement. You know, that that you could keep going, and and uh, it's really really magical. I mean, you're really a master of that. You know, you you well, really understand one, that. one of the. One of the things that makes me happy is that um, nine years ago, I was in hospital for three months in intensive care. I was diagnosed with, well, misdiagnosed. I had sepsis, and my own doctor and the hospital misdiagnosed me. So I was in hospital for three months. I couldn't walk. I could just about talk. I couldn't feed myself. I couldn't wash myself, I couldn't shave, I couldn't do anything. I had all these tubes in me, you know. So after coming out of that experience, I'm just grateful for every day. And the, the thing is, the year before, Jude was diagnosed with cancer, and she managed to survive that, you know. So every day to me is a blessing, Mike, you know. Every day is a great day. So yeah, and you and Judith have been married for how long now? Ah, uh, fifty-four years now. Fifty-four years. Yeah. You are you are an inspiration in so many ways. You know. It wasn't easy at first. <laughs> <laughs> she oh, uh, she she really gave me a hard time. You know, <laughs> when I first met her, I mean, turning up, meeting her, wearing a a mauve suit as well didn't exactly help. <laughs> in the middle of a you know one of the busiest uh, railway stations in London. And people looking and say, oh, it's one of the equals. Oh. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's a great union. She's a great person. Great mother. Very understanding. She looked after the children while, while I was, you know, on the road. And they love her to death. You know, so do I, really. And the funny thing is, my mother didn't like her. And her mother didn't like me. <laughs> <laughs> plans next? Are you, are you hopefully going to be seeing you on stage well, again? Well, I'm hoping to do some, some stuff in America, you know, but um, I'm waiting to see what Jason's going to come up with or if he's coming up with anything. But I really want to do some shows now because it's been over three years now since I did the last gig. I know so, people would love to see you again. I would love to see people again. <laughs> you know, no, I'm definitely going to try and do something uh, this year. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. I've been publishing Ugly Things magazine now for 40 years, covering the best overlooked music of the 1960s and beyond. You can order the latest issue of the magazine at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and tell your friends. We would also really appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter. For just a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters. Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Ray Brandis, Stephen Schmidt, and Phil Payne. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.